If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to the History Extra podcast. Fascinating historical conversations from BBC History Magazine and BBC History Revealed. The early 1960s saw the British establishment facing a challenging new landscape. The Beatles were storming the barricades of popular music. Harold Wilson was bringing a distinctive new voice to the political arena. And the Perfumo Affair was throwing a harsh new light on standards in public life. These developments are the focus of David Kiniston's latest book, A Northern Wind, Britain from 1962 to 65. Here, in conversation with Spencer Mizzen, he charts an era of rapid change but also of enduring conservatism. Hi, David. Thank you for joining us today. No, thank you. Pleasure. Your new book is called A Northern Wind, Britain, 1962 to 65. My first question to you, David, is why that choice of title? What does the northern wind in the title refer to? It's a double reference, really, arguably for two really big events or phenomena of this two and a half years I cover in terms of a narrative are on the one hand the Beatles who exploded in 1963 in a way really almost in any genre but certainly in terms of pop music hard to think of of anything comparable. I mean they were virtually unknown at the start of 1963. By November 63, when they appeared on the Royal Variety performance, uh, they had become a national institution in the space of, what, 10 or 11 months. And obviously, it was they were from Liverpool, and it was that very distinctive Mersey sound and so on. And I think it was part of their their secret, their formula, as it were, that they, they weren't from London, they were, they, they were from the North. That gave them a sort of bit of sort of a slight sort of rougher edge and so on, and, and, and freshness, I think. So, yeah, in terms of coming back to a northern wind, so on the one hand, the wind blowing from Merseyside with the Beatles, but the other crucial thing in terms of politics was that this was when, uh, firstly, in early 63, Harold Wilson became leader of the opposition after Hugh Gateskill's death and then became prime minister as a result of the election in October 64. And Wilson was so different as in terms of his background as a type of 
leader, not only in terms of being a pri- as a prime minister, whereas there have been all the sort of old Etonian pre- conservative predecessors and so on, but actually rather different in terms of being a Labour leader, because his predecessor, Hugh Gateskill, had been at Winchester, was a Wickhamist. Gateskill's predecessor, Clement Attlee, had been to Halebury and was a very loyal old Haley Buren, if that's the right word, whereas Wilson, classic northern grammar school meritocrat with a with a bit of a Yorkshire accent. And so wholly different, really, from anything uh, in terms of the two main parties that has been around si- since the war. And there was, in terms of the sort of the zeitgeist of that, that, that moment, 63-64, it really felt at the time that the Beatles and the Wilson kind of came together, something new, something fresh. Now, I guess thousands and thousands of books have been written about the Beatles down the years. I mean, during your research into this period and into them specifically, did anything you came across really surprise you? Did you feel that you unearthed something particularly new about them? Yeah, I think I'd I'd answer that in two ways, actually. Firstly, I was trying really not to do just another version of the Beatles' rise to, 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 to this extraordinary fame in a sort of, as it were, top-down way. So it's not a study of the Beatles themselves or how the songs were written or the role of George Martin or whatever it might be. I tried to do it in terms of, as it were, bottom-up and getting fans' reactions and, and across society reactions, you know, because there were, there were some people who didn't, you know, I used diaries and so on for that. It was quite hard to do, actually. I think I managed a sort of you know, respectable account uh, with some interest and some novelty in terms of the Beatles' rise through that mainly memories, recollections of, of fans and so on, and, and a certain amount of contemporary reaction as well. But you ask, was there something that sort of surprised me? Well, I did have a bit of a moment, actually. And Obviously, in my account of 1963, the Profumo affair looms large, and maybe we'll, we'll come back to that, I guess. But the sacrificial victim, and it was a terrible story, and it was the British establishment at its very worst. The sacrificial victim of the whole thing was Stephen Ward, the man who introduced Jack Profumo to Christine Keeler and was a sort of society osteopath and so on. And he was made the sacrificial victim. And... It was a show trial, really, at the Old Bailey, and it reached the point where the judge started his summing up, and it was so clearly biased against Ward that that night he took a heavy overdose, lost consciousness, and died two or three days later on a Saturday, first Saturday of August 63. And it just happened that that Saturday evening, a very warm early August evening in Liverpool, was actually as it turned out, the last time the Beatles played at the cavern. And it was really hot and sweaty inside the cavern. And the legal capacity in terms of what fire hazard and whatever was about 250. But in fact, there were about 500, about 500 crammed in. And I say the sort of sweat was sort of dripping down the walls and so on. And by the time the Beatles came on, about five or six local acts played first. And then the Beatles came on at the end. And it was probably about 10 o'clock or 10.30 or something. And anyway, there was a power fault. They were playing and there was a power fault. Uh, so they had to stop. At which point, Paul McCartney, picked up an acoustic guitar and started singing When I'm 64. And When I'm 64, of course, didn't appear until Sergeant Pepper four years later. And as I think I say in the book, it's a sort of time-bending moment. But apparently Paul had written the song quite early, and it is said he was saving it up 
to record it for the time when his father became 64. So, and that apparently was so to said anyway. And I just found it was very resonant because Stephen Ward was 50 when he died, effectively committed suicide. And obviously he, he never lived to hear the song, never lived to be 64. And somehow it, it just seemed a rather poignant conjunction. Absolutely. And so let, let's, you mentioned a perfumo affair there. Let, I mean, let's talk a, a little bit about it. I mean, how momentous was this affair in early sixties in early sixties history of Britain? I mean, what did it say about the establishment's relationship with the media and the British people more generally? Yeah, I think it, I think it was it was important. Some people thought of time, oh, perhaps it's overblown or so on. I don't think so, really, because I mean, it came at a time when the establishment was already being questioned quite hard. And the two obvious examples of that in terms of the media, as it were, were beyond the fringe, 1960, making fun of all sorts of um, sacred cows rather brilliantly. And then that was the week that was, TW3, which had begun in the autumn of 62. And it was the hypocrisy, really, that Profumo solemnly denied in Parliament that he'd had an affair with Keeler, and the press, on the whole, the tabloids went on pushing and questioning, whereas the broadsheets t- took him at his own word. Even the Guardian, which you just sort of said, uh, well, after after Profumo had made his statement denying the affair, the Guardian it, next day said something like, "Well, I think we should just let sleeping dogs lie and not get into this rather sort of, you know, prurient kind of stuff." It took a very high-minded approach, which wasn't wasn't entirely helpful. And then Profumo, two months later, early June 63, had to admit he had lied and resign. And then Ward was made into the scapegoat and Christine Keeler herself was made into a scapegoat. And eventually on pretty trumped up charges to do another case, went to prison in late 63 for six months. And it just made government and establishment look hypocritical and look terribly out of touch as well, I think. The really fascinating thing in terms of the politics is the really interesting thing about this period uh, that the book covers is this, that the zeitgeist with, you know, anti-establishment stuff beyond, the, beyond as I say, beyond the fringe, TW3, private eye, the, uh, the, the rise of the North, the Beatles, irreverent and, and, so, and so on, all seem to be pointing towards upsetting the apple cart, as it were, different from the 1950s, the rather staid 1950s, etc. And the Tories, when Macmillan resigns in October 63, the Tories completely counterintuitively, really, choose Alec Douglas Hume, who has no kind of knowledge of economics. It's an old-fashioned, it's such a sort of old-fashioned gent and toff, basically. And all he really knows about is is diplomacy and he had been foreign secretary and so on and doesn't really have a clue how people live in the Britain of 1963 and everything would seem to point as were the opinion polls at that time towards a, a thumping Labour win at the next election I mean, when it actually came to the election, October the 15th, 1964, Labour barely scraped home with an overall majority of three or four. And, you know, how does one explain this? And I think my essential explanation is that Britain still was uh, a far more old-fashioned, socially conservative and deferential and kind of class-bound country than perhaps people assumed. And that tends to fit in with my general approach to post-war Britain in the books I've been writing. And, you know, it's so easy to read off 
what's happening in the metropolis, what's happening in London or the big London and the big cities, you read off to the entire country. And that is, isn't necessarily so. And of course, we found that out very much with the Brexit vote in 2016, which was very much in the north, for example, the cities tended to vote remain, but it was the towns, as it were, the left behind towns, etc., with a sort of older fashioned way of life and so on, and probably an older, generally an older demographic who voted leave. And it was a bit like that in 64. And the young Tariq Ali, who would become very famous later in the 60s as a sort of student leader and the big demonstration in 68 outside the American embassy at Grosvenor Square against the Vietnam War and became a sort of byword in the late 60s for student radicalism and so on. At the time of the election, he was an undergraduate in, in Oxford, at Oxford and he did a, a bit of canvassing for Labour. And he says in his autobiography that doing that canvassing, uh, often older people on the doorstep would say to him, oh, I think, I think I'll vote for Tory. For Sir Alec, he seems a thoroughly nice chap and a very decent gentleman and experienced and so on. And so deference, basically, was far from dead at this time. And generally, I do think historians, social historians, it's very easy to overrate the pace of change. And I think that's partly because, was well, a particular problem, I think, with the 60s. And it's partly because we have such strong visual images of the 60s. And it's very, we have a very youth-oriented perspective on the 60s. And actually, in my first paragraph of the book, I kind of end the paragraph by mentioning my grandparents, my father's parents, who lived in a small town in Shropshire. And I, I think they had heard of the Beatles. I'm almost sure they'd never heard of the Rolling Stones. And I say, and I mean it, you know, the 60s was just as much their 60s as anyone else. You know, if one's trying to write a broadly, as it were, democratic, inclusive, everyone's life is of equal value, which surely has to be once, as it were, philosophical starting point, writing social history, then I'm very keen that it's not an overly youthist account of the 60s. Well, at the same time, inevitably, I kind of want to have a bit of fun with all that. And why not? Because it was part of it and something did change. But one shouldn't overestimate the reach of, as it were, in inverted commas, the 60s. So kind of re related to that point, I mean, many people look back at the 60s of a a great deal of affection. I mean, there's quite a lot of nostalgia swirling around my young father. He was he was in his late teens in the period you cover in your latest book. And he, he certainly has a lot of nostalgia for that period. But I mean, what, what did you find when you re researched the book? I mean, did you get the sense that Britain was a country that was feeling pretty good about itself? Yes, broadly. I think that's right. And that's largely, I, I suspect, because the song, strongest single as it were, indicator of whether a country is feeling good about itself has to be economic. And there's this weird double thing going on through the, in the 60s and to some extent the 70s. But on the one hand, living standards were rising, rising significantly year on year. People had more disposable income and a better, better standard of life and so on. And then back in 1957, Macmillan had famously said, you've never had it so good. And with qualifications, because there was actually this thing in the mid-60s, the so-called rediscovery of poverty, and someone like Ken Loach making that famous television film, Cathy Come Home, which led to this start of shelter, that housing organisation. But there were still pockets of poverty, and, and that's... an important part of the story. But broadly, most people's living standards were improving. And of course, it was a time of full employment. So 
on the whole, that's what people like, and it's entirely understandable. But the worst thing, of course, is that simultaneously we were in relative economic decline compared with rival countries of which Germany would be the most obvious example, West Germany, or West Germany as it was then. And that was the discourse of economic decline just dominates, well, certainly by the early 60s, through to arguably probably into the 80s. You know, I mean, successive elections, opposition leaders, you know, whether it's Wilson in 64 or Heath in 1970 or Thatcher in 79, will basically say we can, you know, we'll be promising we can do something and we can reverse this relative economic decline. But I think on the whole, I mean, my broad sense anyway, just as a general point, is that people are mainly interested in their own situations and and that of their nearest and dearest and so on, uh, rather than the fate of nations, etc. So I think on the whole, that first narrative of improved living standards tends to outweigh relative economic decline in terms of how t- people are feeling. What about Britain's attitude to the the rise of the welfare state? I mean. A Northern Wind is, I think, the eighth book in your series on the social history of post-war Britain. And so this is a history that runs from 1945 through to Margaret Thatcher's election. We're about at the halfway point now, is that right? Yeah, a bit over, a bit over halfway in terms of the chronology. 62 is the halfway. Um, yeah, no, that's, that's the aim, <laughs> yeah. to get to 79. Sure. <laughs> um, sometimes, you know, like running the race or something, but the, the, the finishing post seems to get ever further away. But anyway, <laughs> not to worry. But of course, the welfare state, the modern welfare state, the creation of it by the Attlee, Clement Attlee's Labour government, immediate post-war, is a cardinal moment in, in modern British history. My impression in terms of the late 40s, and particularly the NHS starting in 48, is that people did welcome it. But as far as I can see from the contemporary evidence, they largely welcomed it less because it meant, as it were, in a sort of philosophical sense, uh, generalised sense, universal health care, free at the point of, of, of delivery. But more they welcomed it because it meant for themselves, it almost felt like something for nothing. And, and of course it was, you know, there had been people, very poor people who'd had either denied health care before, before the start of the NHS or it was very difficult to access it. Or it was a very, it was a matter of great anxiety and worry, you know, rather like for, far too many people still in the United States today. So it was broadly welcomed. I I have a chapter in the new book in which I try and look as hard as I can at the welfare state in actual operation by the early to mid-60s. And there's no doubt that across the board, whether it's to do with social security, whether it's to do with the NHS in terms of physical health, whether it's to do with mental health, whether it's to do with... um, housing, uh, whether it's to do with education. But it was still, although intrinsically a good thing, as it were, it, it still left quite a lot to be desired in its daily practice. It was still very sort of paternalistic, not always in a very good way, in the sense of not listening to people, not catering to individual wishes and demands, treating people as units. And on the whole, that picture it it paints is a slightly depressing one. It's still, as it were, spiritually, the welfare state is still back in the 1940s. It's still that wartime feel and a kind of be grateful for what you get given kind of thing, you know. And 
which is wrong, really, because people, for obvious reasons, you know, we all, you know, taxpayers fund the welfare state, etc. So that really shouldn't be quite the attitude. Um, so I think people were broadly positive about the welfare state, but slightly, with a slightly kind of grumpy kind of undertow. But, you know, but that's very British, I guess. <laughs> It certainly is. What are the main challenges of studying in such depth, a rec- such a recent period in history? And this is, this, these are histories that many of our listeners will actually remember themselves that they actually lived through. And there's obviously like copious sources for the stuff stuff you're writing about. I mean, as a historian, what kind of challenges does that present you? Yeah, no, it does present challenges, and I often think. I have to sort of compare myself as a contemporary historian with, say, being a medievalist and what an utterly different kind of process it must be. And sometimes I might look at a local paper, for example, and if it's a reasonably, you know, reasonably good local paper, I might just look at one issue and even just one issue of, say, a weekly local paper. And there might be three or four stories in that single issue. Which I, oh, yeah, this is interesting. I could do something. I could go down that particular... So there are endless rabbit holes one can go down. So I guess that's, that's one challenge, is not getting completely swamped by the massive material. And my kind of rule of thumb is that ideally something which I, I note, and therefore perhaps I'm going to use in, in my book, ideally it has to be both interesting and significant at the least it has to be either interesting or significant and if it's neither interesting nor significant it's got to go (laughs) which helps a bit i think perhaps more importantly trying to avoid the trap of nostalgia because you know i'm writing about say 1964 for the sake of argument and i can you know just starting i I would had my 13th birthday in 1964 and i I do have quite vivid memories of that election that october that was when i kind of got some sort of political consciousness as it were but the fact is that 1964 and the fullness of time will become as remote as 1864 or 1764 are now and so i do keep telling myself that that one should be trying to write something yeah, you know, as an ideal, which might be read further down the line by people who don't actually remember 1964. And it's one of the reasons why I do quote, it's not the main reason, but it's one of the reasons why I quote a lot of contemporary material, because contemporary primary source material, diaries, letters, contemporary newspapers, you know, archi- archival material generally, that in a sense doesn't date. Whatever I write will date but the source material itself doesn't date. And, and any author, I think, likes to think that their stuff might be, might be read some years hence. You know, it's, a, it's an ambition anyway, and, why, and a legitimate one to have, even if one can't, even if it's not fulfilled. And also, I do think, you know, you mentioned people re- re- reading the books will, if they're older, will remember some of this, to guard against the temptation, and also perhaps to warn a bit against the temptation, if it doesn't sound too puritanical, of extrapolating the, the general from the particular, because one particular person's experience is not necessarily representative. And I had, some years ago, when the sort of early on in my 
this post-war books was speaking at a literary festival about the immediate post-war period and I was I was I think quite rightly painting a picture drawing a picture of a pretty difficult time in those austerity years after the war almost more difficult just in terms of living conditions than it's been during the war and there were one or two people in the audience sort of people in their say 60s or 70s who'd been children then in say 1946 47 and they sort of put their hand up and say basically say, I've got it all wrong. Oh, it was great then. We had a really great time, you know, and we sort of play with our friends and muck around and we could just get out on the street and so on. And to which I kind of wanted to say, yes, but you didn't have to put the food on the table and so on. But their parents, of course, were no longer alive to give a, you know... So it gives a counter-argument. But, you know, we all do it. I mean, I, I'm sure I'm as guilty of extrapolating from my own experiences as anyone else. And you think about the 60s, where, you, you know, you mentioned your, your father, and I, I suspect he was kind of Beatles and Stones-oriented and so on. And, you know, as indeed w- w- was I. And this is a killer fact, which in all honesty, I have to say, I got from another historian, Dominic Sandbrook. Dominic came up with the wonderful fact that the best-selling... LP, best-selling album of the 1960s, was not Sgt. Pepper or Stone's Greatest Hits or whatever it might have been. It was the um, soundtrack of The Sound of Music. I think that's one of those killer facts that says an awful lot more than just the fact itself, as it were. Did you spy many parallels between then and now when you were researching the book? Yes, I think in the sense that it's hard, it has been hard in recent years if one's a contemporary historian not to be quite preoccupied by that Brexit vote in 2016. You know, I think there are the odd dates in, in history, the odd moments uh, that are so defining and one starts thinking very hard about the, 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 the causes of whatever it was that happened. And I think 1979 was one such event with Thatcher coming to power. And in a sense, I think we still do live in some sense in, in, in Thatcher's Britain. And I think that vote in 2016, uh, in my view, it was very little to do with Europe itself. And in many ways, given it was on the whole older people who voted, uh, whether working class or middle class, who voted leave. In many ways, I think it was a cry against modernity, actually, uh, is my personal take. I mean, obviously, there's other stuff going on as well. But I kind of see that as the heart of it, actually. And in the 1960s, things were changing so in some ways changing so rapidly, or at least on the surface appearance of things was changing so rapidly. Um, and we've talked about various cultural things. But of course, a huge thing was to do with the urban environment, the built environment, and what was happening to our towns and cities that were being kind of completely, well, I'm tempted to say destroyed, as indeed some of them were really destroyed and then rebuilt, but often rebuilt in ways where there was very little continuity with the past. And I think it's some sort of as it were, psychic level, older people in particular found that very hard to deal with. I think older people found it very hard to deal with becoming a multicultural, you know, and over the years have found it hard to deal with the, the, the evol- our evolution from monocultural to a multicultural society. And that, of course, played its part in the 2016 vote. The politics of, of race and immigration were becoming very central by the, by, by the mid 1960s. So there are parallels. Although in some ways, gosh, it seems a completely different world. Uh, <laughs> you know, think a world of what? Uh, before BBC Two started in 1964, a world of two television channels total. <laughs> that was David Kiniston, 
A Northern Wind, Britain 1962-65, is published by Bloomsbury. Thanks for listening to the History Extra podcast. This podcast was produced by Brittany Colley. A collision between a Chinese jet and an American spy plane. He came and rammed into our left wing. With relations increasingly strained, what are the chances of things spinning out of control? The Western world was asleep. I'm Gordon Carrera. I'll be exploring the friction in this most important of relationships and asking, has the West taken its eye off the ball? You cannot ignore China. From BBC Radio 4, this is Shadow War, China and the West. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.